Have you ever longed to escape reality or fantasized about stepping into someone else's shoes, even for just a little while? Hi, I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Hawley. We host CBC's Play Me, the immersive podcast that transforms theater into addictive audio fiction. Join us for a new season and disappear into a world rich with drama, where every show delivers hypnotizing stories and unveils intriguing characters with secrets. Play me wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Eleanor Wachtel, and this is Writers and Company from the Archives. Today, Yen Gu, named one of China's future literary masters. Her 2020 novel, translated as Strange Beasts of China, is a mysterious imaginative tale. Now she's made her English-language debut with a new book. By the time she was 17 years old, Yen Gu, spelled Y-A-N, GE was a literary sensation in China. With the help of a teacher, she signed up for a national writing contest for teens and came first out of 50,000 students. As she tells it, it was kind of like American Idol and very intense. When she won, she was greeted with publishing offers. Now 39, she's the author of 14 books, including six novels. But it's only in the past few years that she's been discovered in English translation. Partly, this coincides with her moving to Ireland and then England. Yen Gu was born in Pixian, a small town in Sichuan Province, China. She studied at university in the nearby capital city of Chengdu. And some years later, she spent two years as a visiting scholar at Duke University in North Carolina. She returned to China and was planning to continue her studies at Columbia in New York when she fell in love with, and subsequently married, an Irishman whom she met at the local Starbucks in Chengdu. They moved to Dublin in 2015. A year later, Yen Gu started writing in English as well as Chinese. Since then, some of her earlier titles have been translated and published in English. The Chili Bean Paste Clan, from 2013, is set in a fictionalized town similar to Pixian, where Yen Gu grew up. Its somewhat farcical story revolves around a family of rivalrous middle-aged siblings, and in particular, the youngest son, a misogynist, hard-drinking manager of the Chili Bean Paste Factory. Then, in 2021, a much earlier and very different novel, Strange Beasts of China, came out in English. Part noirish detective story, part extraordinary inventory of mythological creatures who live alongside human beings. Now Yen Gu has published her first book written in English. Elsewhere is a collection of short stories that's attracted enthusiastic reviews and has already been named one of the best books of 2023 by The New Yorker. Last year, I spoke to Yen Gu from her home in Norwich, England, where she lives with her husband and young son. Your fiction is often inspired by the place where you're from, a small town in southwestern China on the outskirts of Chengdu, the capital city of Sichuan. What was it like there when you were growing up? Um, yeah, When I was growing up, it was a very, very small, kind of like a provincial place. And the place is called Pixian. And now it's called it's, it has a different name now because now uh, recently it was made into this urban district of Chengdu so now it's a part of the city um, but back then it was absolutely provincial you'd easily walk past like fields on your way back home from school and I remember the streets are absolutely being dusty and potholed and and most importantly I think everybody knows everybody and in Pixian we had a saying it could dr- roughly be translated like um, one could walk from South Street to North Street without carrying a penny because everybody knows you and your family and they would give you water or food if you need anything. So it's kind of (laughs) that kind of really small and intimate community. I think now I'm out of it, looking back, I really miss that kind of intimacy. Um, But I remember back then, I find it very stifling and, you know, I can't, even as a child, I really see that the how 
that could be really confining. And I think when I was living in Pisang as a child, I just could not wait to, to you know, like, this is like a typical story um, yes, of somebody yes. who's from a small town. You just couldn't wait to get out of it. Yeah. And your hometown is known for producing a spicy, bright red chili bean paste. Uh, we'll talk a lot more about that later in connection with your one of your novels. But what, what's the significance of that? Well, I suppose the significance of it is um, it's widely used in the local cuisine. I think the official slogan for that product, the chili bean paste, they call it the, the spirit, the soul of Sichuan cuisine. So that's how widely it's used. But actually, personally, I, I quite I didn't really like the chili bean paste when I was when I was a child when I was living in Pisian, and I think the reason for it was probably because I was traumatized um, by this experience that happened when I was five years old, and it was during a family gathering, and one of my uncles picked up like a small lump of the chili bean paste using his chopsticks and dared me to eat it. And I remember all my cousins just cheered me on, saying that if I ate it, I'd be a hero. If I didn't, I'd be a loser. <laughs> so naturally, uh, as a five-year-old, I did not want to be a loser, and I ate up the whole lump of the chili bean paste, and it was just not pleasant. Uh, so for many, many years, I refused to eat any spicy food. Um, and it's like very atypical. It's kind of quite weird, um, you know, in where I was from. And um, not until maybe when I actually eventually left China and went to the United States, did I start to kind of miss the taste of chili bean paste and eventually ended up writing about it. So so I'm not like the best spokesperson for like <laughs> for like the chili bean paste because I, I don't really have spicy food. <laughs> Right. Well, I think I think you uh, you once described it as the the townsfolk grow up with a hole in their tongues or something like that. So uh, yeah, it's yeah. it's your it's your uncle's fault, clearly. Yeah, yeah. I I never because in that book, like my dad read it, and he he kind of really laughed about the way I wrote about like spicy food, all those dishes. Because not only I don't eat spicy foods, I also don't eat meat. And he was like, what kind of poetic imagination you have? <laughs> Writing all those as if, yeah, he thought it was really funny that I kind of just latched it out there in the fictional world as if I ate all of those things. <laughs> Growing up, I mean, you're, you're an only child. You were born a few years after the Chinese government's one-child policy was, was put into place. You, you lived with your parents and an extended family of grandparents, aunts and uncles. I understand yours was a literary family. In in what sense? Well, in the sense that um, my whole extended family, I, I think pretty much everybody there would be a, a like one kind of a literary person. Like both of my parents were Chinese teachers, in the sense here, like English teachers, so they were like literature teachers. And then my granny, she's a poet, and my granddad was also a Chinese teacher. And then I have uncles who are like journalists and editors. So yeah, everybody was like very into literature. And I have vivid memories of um, over say family gathering, like a dinner, and we just start reciting poetry together. And then to the extent sometimes when somebody recited something everybody really loved, people would start to cry or like having tears in their eyes. And it's kind of melodramatic now looking back, but when I was a child, it was absolutely like the norm in my family. And my dad actually, I remember, so when I was really small, say in elementary school, he'd always get up early and, and make breakfast for me every day. So I'd wake up with hearing him making breakfast in the kitchen. And while he was making breakfast, he'd always recite either some classic Chinese poems or some essays from Lu Xun or Shen Songfen, as if, you know, he did it in the way as if somebody else were like singing a song, you know, when they were kind of in this mood and he'd recite um, poetry or prose. So <laughs> it's kind of, and, and later when I was in secondary school, I realized that a lot of the things he'd recited in the kitchen, and then I naturally in turn remembered were actually in the Chinese textbooks. So that helped me a lot, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but you also, uh, as, as I understand, as, as a small child, you assigned yourself the task of reciting several poems per day. What was the appeal for you, or were you just emulating your your father? 
I think reciting is a biggest part of like Chinese literary learning. That we have the saying to say,、um, if you read a book for a hundred times, you understand its meaning. So when classic literature were taught, generally, they don't explain to you what it means. So the best way to learn is to read it repeatedly to the extent that you can memorize and recite it. So、um, I was nobody assigned me, by the way, because because my my parents later when I start telling stories of me、uh, reciting poems, they they were kind of worried, thinking, oh, we didn't ask her to do that. <laughs> like nobody asked me to do that. And <laughs>、um, I just really, I would, I just really loved it. I think, and I was attracted to that musicality. I think naturally. So I I assigned myself with this mission of like reciting three to four poems a day. Um, I did it for a very long time, and I was able to kind of recite continuously for like an hour. <laughs> This used to be like a special skill that I had. Your, your name,、uh, Yen Gu, is is a nom de plume or, or pen name, but your birth name was taken from an ancient Chinese poem. But what, what was that about? Yeah, yeah. So my granny and my grandmother, and she gave me this name. My birth name is called Dai Yuexing. So Dai is my family name. Yuexing, that's the given name. So it was taken from this poem written by a Jin Dynasty、um, poet. So the line, and、um, roughly, you translate that into kind of at dawn I rise to clear the weeds in the field, bringing back my hole with moon above my head. So with moon above my head, that's my my name, like Dai Yuexing. So it's kind of like a wordplay that you can translate it into, like to walk under the moon and taking the moon as your hat, because the very character "die" means to wear something on your head. So it's kind of really poetic. And my granny,、um, she was very proud that you know she gave me this name, and and she has said repeatedly when I was small, and、um, she thought it was the perfect name for me to use as. My pen name as the name that will appear on the cover of my future books when I grew up and become a writer. So that was her plan. <laughs> so, so was it destiny that 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 you became a writer? I personally, as an individual who believes like my own agenda, I would say no. It's like my own choice. But it seems to be like I was just somehow coerced. I think, in a way, I was thinking about the way I was growing up, and everybody was like just very into poetry and literature. And I think for me, that is like the only way of being. There was never a different choice for me, and in terms of what I want to be when I grew up, it has to be some kind of a you know literary person. So yeah, it's kind of.、Um, This is what would you call that kind of like almost like a formidable influence that you just can't escape. Did Did you ever rebel and dream of being a doctor or a lawyer? I mean, a reversal of the stereotype. And、um, no, I think my only um, the, you know, my only act of um being the rebel against my family is that I ended up not using the name my granny gave me. Um, instead, I picked. My own pen name, which is Yan Ge, so I didn't obviously I was not published as Dai Yuexing. So my well, my first book、uh, was about to come out, and I decided to use、um, Yan Ge, which which comparing with Dai Yuexing would be a far less poetic name, would be like quite a mundane name.、Um, I think that's my rebel against my family. That was it. <laughs> Does Yan Ge mean something as well? And it's just very simple, like comparing with say, how I had to elaborate lengthy on like the meaning of diversing. Yanggu just means color and song. That's that's so it's kind of really simple. Can you tell me a bit more about your parents, their their backgrounds,、uh, what what they were like? Um, my parents are both from Pisi, and they're both from the town. My my dad is from the town, like and my mom is from kind of like a small village outside of it. And I think they met each other. This is the story they told me. And、um, is when I can't remember when they were in the early twenties. It must be. And then my dad and a couple of his friends were running a a literary journal in Pisian in town. So my mom, then, so she wrote a story. I think then, and then she went to the office and the editor's office where my dad was, and to submit her story and、um, to this literary journal. And that's how they met. So I think, as far as I recall, like I always remember them as this very、uh, loving and affectionate couple, and、um, 
and they they have really good relationship and I also had very good relationship with both of them and they're they've been kind of impossibly like supportive and um, towards my writing even when I was really really young like I remember when I was maybe eight nine years old and I began to write some little like personal essays in this notebook and my dad would just type up my stories because he had a computer back then I think and he would just type up these stories in the computer and print them out and send them like submit them to like newspapers or like student literary journals and some of them then ended up being published and then when I was a bit older, kind of becoming more maybe committed in my in pursuing my dream of becoming a writer, I begged my parents to to allow me to not do, say we have like summer break and winter break, like you know during school years, and um, and we get loads of like uh, school assignments. So I begged them to allow me to not do the school assignments and instead writing stories. It's really kind of crazy now thinking, because especially they're both Chinese parents, and they just said yes. So they, they, <laughs> they agreed that I could just write stories during summer and winter breaks. They are kind of um, very, very good parents, and it's kind of, I think a lot of people I know, like Chinese people, my cousins, they thought it was really incredible because they would be pressured by their parents to study. They never pressured me to study, but but, but but then but then when you were seventeen, you won this huge prize, and and so you actually were very successful writing those those stories, which yeah yes, but you you'd been writing and publishing for for a while, but there was a defining experience for you which happened quite early on that you've said helped you understand profoundly why you wanted to make writing your life's work. Could you can you talk about that? So I think it was, um, I've always obviously um, liked writing, um, but I probably never really thought of myself like in a very serious sense, like um, as a writer. I just thought I was, you know, a person who writes. And I think it was probably um, in the freshman year when I was a freshman in the college. And then at that time, my mom was diagnosed with cancer, and then she was admitted in the hospital, and she'd been in hospital for, like, she in total, I think, she'd been in the hospital for 10 months before she passed away. So it was around, during the same period of time, I think, I came across um, this book. It's, um, it's the Western Canon by Harold Boom, and, mm-hmm. um, and I read it in Chinese, and in the book he was talking about... Um, what what do we consider as good literature? And he was saying um, the canon, the good literature, um, would not make one a better or worse person, a more useful, more harmful citizen. Um, the canon can only teach one to how to properly use one's own solitude and whose final form, the solitude's final form, is for one's confrontation with one's own death, like one's own uh, mortality. And and I was really, really struck by this sense of the idea of literature teaches us to, you know, be at peace with solitude, to use solitude and and then the the ultimate form of solitude of being death and then fundamentally good literature teaches you to how to face your own death. And very quickly after that my mom passed away. And I got a phone call and it was like, today is the day. So I went to the hospital and we knew she was going to, you know, it was her day. So um, I got there and she was um, sitting, she was sitting up on, on her bed. So I went over and I held her hand. She leaned against my shoulder and, and you know, I knew that that was it. And she just looked really pale. You know, she had been doing um, chemo for, I don't know how long at that point. Um, so I held her hand and she was very weak and she couldn't really talk. And I said, well, if you want to lie down and um, to squeeze my hand. So so then after a while, she squeezed my hand. And as I was lowering her down to the bed and and I saw she looking at me and looked at her. And then I saw the look in her eyes. And I think it's a now I think it probably is like a mixture of, you know, she must be really worried about me. How am I going to cope with this? And I'm the only child and and a lot of things. But it's like also kind of, you know, uncertainty and fear and just just the look in her eyes. And and for so long, I couldn't forget that. And like 
afterwards she closed her eyes and very quickly she passed away. And naturally, I think it, this is not very kind of um, it's probably universal experience for people who's lost their parents. You know, you begin to think you're gonna die exactly the way the same way your parent died, and you're gonna have the same feelings the way they felt when they died. So I was convinced for so long that was how I would die one day, and I was terrified. I think for so long, and then I revisited this thing <laughs> Harold Bloom was saying, and um, in the Western canon and. And I thought, yeah, that was it. Um, and uh, in the in that moment, I I felt really strongly that literature writing is my calling because I have to continue to practice this to to know how to use solitude and to know how to be peaceful, be friends with solitude. So one day when I die, possibly in my head, I thought I was going to die at the age when my mom died, and I would know how to you know face that properly. Without much fear, because I would have become friends, being at peace with solitude by practicing writing and literature. That's very. It's very serious. It's very. It's it's sad and it's inspiring in a way too. Yeah. When 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 your mother was ill, you say that during the time you were constantly by her side, but she never really talked about what was happening. Do you understand why? Mm. I think, I think possibly, especially between me and my mom, I, because she had made arrangements, you know, and so she must had talked about it with, say, my father or her sister, but she never talked about it with me. I think it was because my relationship with my mother, like we're mother and daughter, it's a very intense and intimate and unique relationship. And and I felt she couldn't know, and I couldn't know equally how to face this imminent departure. Of you know, she had to say goodbye to me in a way, abandoning me, although not out of her own will. And I would have to find a way psychologically to cope with it. So I would be in her house, you know, in her room in the hospital a lot,、um, but I. Rarely, like, talk to her. Like, we rarely had like real communication because there would always be a lot of people around. So we, we're kind of like avoiding each other, because I think we couldn't know how to, how to tell one another that. Because because she couldn't really know how to tell me that, you know, because my mother's death was obviously the first death. In my life, that I was nineteen years old, that kind of you know is kind. Of, for her, I think probably similarly, she was forty-eight、um, years old. So n- you know, neither of us were were prepared for this, and、um, so we just didn't really know how to deal with it. And especially, I think between her and myself, yeah. It's funny because、um, it's not funny, but. Like it would, it would, it would be impossible for me to talk about my mother's death in Chinese. Actually, I, I was only able to talk about it, I think, in English, and I find it much easier to talk about it in English because obviously this is my second language, and it gives you that distance as if you are narrating someone else's story. And it's it's a tough story to tell, and. Do you feel now when you? I mean, I remember Harold Bloom talking about that, about the consolation of writing in the sense of solitude. Do you feel that in committing yourself to writing that it's something that that's working for you as as a way of dealing with things? I think for me, like, because I've known a lot of other writers, and but I kind of feel I'm like a very tragically unique case in the sense, like. I was born into literature, really, and that seems to be my only language, my only way of looking at the world, my only way of being. So, I don't see there's any possibility, say, facing my mother's death, that I could find, you know, a different way. Like I could start, like, learn to dance, for instance. I it was just it would just be kind of, you know, impossible. So I, I suppose that seems to be the only way I know to essentially to cope with it, but. I don't really know if I've made it better or worse, like in terms of the grief,、um, because 
it's been so many years, like seventeen, eighteen years since my mom passed away. But I don't, I don't think I can say that I've kind of、um, stepped out of it. Or I feel like I'm still in the same place. I'm still like in the room when she died, like I was lowering her down. I think I'm still living in the moment. This many years later, and and I think you know, especially when I write in Chinese, and I feel especially after my mother's death, my mom's death, everything I wrote was about her, and is one of my main setting um in my Chinese writing my novels in Chinese, and、um, is this small town Pingletown, and I think Pingletown essentially is my hometown when my mom was still alive. So that's it's kind of like this confined space, both space-wise and time-wise, and it's like this capsule. And I just continue to go back, visit it. I almost feel like I was trying to use my writing, you know, the stories to reconstruct that world, kind of to create like a, a simulation of the world, as if my my mom was still alive. And、um, so I don't think say. If if we were like going into therapy, <laughs> my therapist would probably say, "Well, Yan, this is not. I don't know. I kind of feel it's not an absolute healthy way like to deal with it." <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure that the therapist would say that. But Yan Gu, not long after your mother's death, you were commissioned by a literary magazine to write a serialized story, like with monthly installments, which would later become your novel *Strange Beasts of China*. You were 21, still a student at Sichuan University in in Chengdu. Why did the assignment appeal to you? So the editor came to me. He just wanted me to write a serialized novel.、And、so the idea is, I write something light, because their magazine is like a literary magazine, but mainly for young, like college, university、uh, students. So, so I thought this will be a perfect kind of like distraction for me, because at that point, my mom had just passed away, and I was just not functioning very well in many ways, and and so I thought. This will be of a good distraction to not think about literature, like all the heaviness <laughs> of literature, just like something fun. And also, I thought it's a good routine to be taken on. Like if you have to、um, write something every month, maybe then that will keep my, keep me in shape. So yeah, so I, I I said yes to that, and thinking that would help me to get through this period of you know I just did not know what to do at that point. Although the the narrator of the story is a young woman who alludes to the death of her mother, so there's certain leakage here. Yeah, She- yeah, yeah. Well, the way I remember it, because obviously this book I wrote when I was twenty one, it was many many years ago, and recently was published in English. And then I went back and I reread it, and I was absolutely shocked because the way I remembered it, I totally detached myself, as in like my personal life and my personal feelings, from the writing. And I thought, I remember I I created like a fictionalized persona. Where like everything that was happening in my life were absolutely like concealed, and obviously that was not the case. So when I read it, I was shocked. <laughs> so what I'm saying is, I think I did not plan to write about my personal life or kind of taken on this very autobiographical element, and to kind of um to to kind of mix that into the narrative of strange beasts of China. And I was so exposed. Actually, I I I think it's not that I, I allow myself to be exposed. It's I couldn't help, isn't it? I had really not much controlling what I wanted to put on the page and what I wanted to conceal or how how far I wanted to step back. I just couldn't. Strange Beasts of China takes place in the fictional city of Yang'an in southwest China, where human beings live alongside a variety of mysterious beasts, and and the novel follows the narrator, a nameless young woman who's writing short stories ab- about the creatures. The the beastly inhabitants of of this town, Yang'an. Yang'an's inspired by a real place, but the beastly inhabitants are your own invention. I mean, they're wonderfully creative. They they have 
physical quirks and, and especially evocative names. There are sorrowful beasts, joyous beasts, flourishing beasts, thousand league beasts. I mean, where, where do the names come from? How did you conjure that up? Um, I think my idea was I wanted to find something that's very ancient sounding. So it would be a word that you could easily and see in certain kind of like classic texts. And also I was trying to use the, the genre of zhi, the format of, of zhi, which is like an, a classic format. So in Chinese, the book is called yi shou zhi. Zhi is like a dictionary or like encyclopedia where you have all the entries of different like items. So then um, I would have to have one kind of beast per chapter. But at the same time, I think I was trying to kind of draw attention to the marginalized groups of the city, like all the all the beasts in the city um, were, like if we were talking about like the actual city, I think if I were say taking inspirations, I was thinking a lot about the marginalized and underrepresented oppressed groups in the city. And it's kind of like really making pretty straightforward metaphors, isn't it? (laughs) Despite their unique characteristics, many of the beasts can easily pass as human. They may have an odd distinguishing mark, like a fin next to the ear or a bone spur on the ankle. But we're often reminded that they're just like regular people. And the narrator's mother is quoted as saying, you can't be sure that beasts aren't people or that people aren't just another type of beast. Is that something you wanted to explore, this blurred line between human and beast? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, rather than saying, like, the the line is blurred, um, it's this sort of um, interchangeability. It's really about um, the arbitrariness of whom we see as the good, whom we see as the bad, whom we see as the human, whom we see as the beast. I think all of those are quite arbitrary, like how we, each one of us, ended up being positioned in this hierarchy and and how like that could just be changed, that could just, just be swapped. So I think in a way, it's like we have to have the concept of the other to be able to define ourselves. But I kind of feel maybe I was trying to write to defy this idea of we have to separate ourselves from the other. Rather, I just wanted to emphasize that the other could just be us. As you mentioned earlier, the the, the beasts are exploited, uh, manipulated by humans for, for social or economic gain. I mean, there's, there's this, there is that kind of like, like a political undercurrent. Can, can you talk about that? I think when I was writing um, in the story on the way the beasts were exploited, it, again, I kind of was not talking about the other. I think I was talking about us. It's really the general public and the masters. And in, in different society, we have different masters. But I think in this case, I think I was writing about the general condition of us as humans um, in the sense, you know, we are always in a system um, being exploited and manipulated in different way by the masters, by the tools the masters give us, like, you know, fundamentally the language, the way we think, and also the social structure um, and how you know everybody needs to go to work, <laughs> but then obviously the way the beasts were treated are the most extreme and crucifying version of such exploitation. They are kind of very brutally, um, aggressively being exploited. But I think I was not writing about it in the sense of like, oh, because I am in a better position, so I wanted to expose this. I pity them. I did feel, and I still feel that now, is I am one of those people. Although obviously I am a lot, a lot more privileged than, say, a migrant worker, but I am also being exploited in this society by the power structure. 
when when the Strange Beasts of China was adapted as a series for Chinese television five years ago, the beasts had to be changed to robots. Why why was that? Um, you see, this the thing about the censorship is that it's purely random. It's not like there's a handbook to say. Those are the things we're not supposed to do. It's just because it's purely random. Sometimes I think it gives you reasons that you feel it's very. It's almost like it's a prank. And in this case, is、um, they told me because they felt、um, if all the beasts were beasts, and then you know what、well, this is. I hope it's not a spoiler, but like you know. Some beasts would end up having relationships with humans, so、um, they felt it was not very ethical. And so then、uh, we were advised to change that into robots. But I was quite baffled by it, and I thought, so is it ethical for robots to have relationships <laughs> with humans?、Um, but in the end, we just changed it. We just went with it anyway. <laughs> Hey, my name is Jamie Poisson, and I'm the host of Frontburner. It's the CBC's daily news podcast, and every day we're discussing the big events and fault lines shaping Canada and the world—politics, economics, social movements—you name it. Sometimes we even talk about really fun stuff, like the enduring relevance of Lord of the Rings. You can hear Frontburner on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. Yenge, when you were 26, you left China to study in the United States at Duke University in North Carolina. What was that move like for you? So when I decided that I、uh, I was going to the United States, it was really like a very abrupt decision. So I didn't really like. I think most of students who would be going abroad in China, they would take it would take years for them to prepare themselves to do, you know to study the language, to do different exams, and and then eventually they go there. For me, it was、um, I heard about this thing to the point I was in the states. Probably took about seven eight months. So it was like very quick. Everything happened, and as a result, I was absolutely you know. Unprepared when I got there, and it was such a shock, and and also because you know, like I didn't really study English like as an undergraduate student, so I had like little language proficiency, and then my supervisor he was teaching this undergraduate class, and he invited me to sit in like to audit. Um, and it, I remember so clearly, and this undergraduate class is called the Vampires in Literature. So then everybody was talking about、um, vampires. I think it was back when you know the movie. I can't remember the name. The vampire movies were like really popular. The,、um, the Twilight series. Or the、something? Twilight. Yes. Yes. Thank you. And、uh, so yeah, there was kind of um, I I could not understand a word um from anybody's mouth, and I was absolutely shocked. But、um, I wouldn't say that I didn't enjoy it, though. I was there for like a year, and I felt, I felt that was where I kind of、um, very slowly found my English persona, like this me now who's talking to you. Like you know, it would be slightly different from me in Chinese, and I think it was in that setting. And then I remember the next semester I signed up、um, for this. It's a postgraduate course.、Um, And French theories, French literary theories. I suppose I really start begin to kind of learn English, as well as like studying French literary theories, and <laughs> so that's I think it contribute a lot to like how I think in English and my English persona, like how I talk, and I'm like a massive Codian, and I was. I couldn't. If you let me talk about, like, I don't know, like a quasi-serious issue, I would not be able to say ten or twenty sentences without mentioning power structure. And I think that's how deeply <laughs> my 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 person, like my persona in English,、um, now obviously has become has increasingly becoming my dominant persona. And was like fostered in that setting in the in the classroom of French literary theories. And at Duke University. 
I usually when you I sort of ask like how do you have your personality is different I mean it, that's true of anyone I think when they speak a different language they have a slightly different personality but it's the first time I've heard someone say that their English persona is imbued with French critical theory <laughs> <laughs> yeah I do I'm, I'm like I'm very attached to like French philosophers in a very like non sort of rational way and I quite like you know I really like this uh, philosopher uh, scholar and um, Jacques Ranchier and I don't know if he's like very popular but I absolutely so um, when I was giving birth I brought his book <laughs> and to the hospital because that that's how I felt like at that most vulnerable moment that I needed to be with uh, Jacques Ranchier which was quite absurd like in my husband's eyes so that's how deeply I was involved with <laughs> It was while you were in North Carolina that you wrote your novel, The Chili Bean Paste Clan, and it is your first novel to be translated into English, and it's something very different from Strange Beasts. Uh, it's set in a town called Pingle, a fictionalized version of your hometown of Pisian, and it centers on the family who runs the town's lucrative chili bean paste factory. The story is told by the family's only child, a young woman who we learn is in a psychiatric hospital. Why did you want to tell the story from her perspective? Um, now, since we've just had that brief discussion on how I'm deeply involved um, or I'm deeply obsessed with French philosophers, and you can easily see this is such a Foucauldian move to have a story being told. <laughs> by a patient who's in a psychiatric hospital and <laughs> and also and I think when I decided to write that story the chili bean paste clan but the Chinese title for that is womanxia which is our family so I think I wanted to kind of write a novel where all the characters I think were all really horrendous in different ways but I also wanted to say that these horrendous, terrible characters were also my family. Not like my literal family, but, you know, it's like our family. Um, so I think that's the starting point where I decided to have this I in the story, because I need to have I to say this is mine, that's my dad in the story. So I think in this story, the I shifts between sort of um, an individual subjectivity and the collective consciousness. Um, in a sense, this eye seems to be omniscient at times. Mm -hmm. She's very, she's removed from the action, but she no, seems to know a lot about what's going on. She's very elusive. The chili bean paste clan, as it's called in English, is it's a story about secrets and revelations, but when it comes to her own story, we find out almost nothing, including we don't even know why she was in the hospital in the first place. Although now we know it's because you were reading Foucault. But, <laughs> but at, at the center of the story is Dad, as, as the narrator, his daughter, calls him. He's in his early 40s. He's the director of this uh, the chili bean paste factory. He was groomed to take over from a young age. Dad is not exactly a lovable guy. He's he's crude and misogynist. He he likes to overindulge in food and booze and sex. How did he get to be that way? So the reason I think I wanted to write a character like that in the story is because um, I think at that stage of my writing, I thought I'd gone too far writing very literary and very nerdy novels. So I just decided to to try to work with a small business owner in a small town who doesn't have any proper education, who's vulgar, promiscuous, and materialistic. It's like the opposite of, you know, the things that I am really familiar with, I've kind of extensively uh, worked on. So I thought this was something I wanted to use almost like as a device to correct myself from being very scholarly and literary as a writer. That seems to be the way I work. It's always I see my novels, like my next novel or what is the next project, as this process of correcting, kind of refining myself as a writer. So I always kind of identify 
problems in my previous project, saying, "Okay, what can you do as exercise to correct that?" So this is like my correction, <laughs> and um, but then the next challenge is, I think I wanted to write an absolute like you know massively flawed character, but also I wanted to make him lovable. So I think that was the challenge, and that's how the character Dad came about. I think it's, it's, it works very successfully because he is this sort of awful character, and you do make him lovable, maybe likable, maybe not lovable, but he's certainly no worse than anybody else in the, in the family as as it comes out because he starts off seemingly horrible. I mean, he he refers to women as stupid cows, whereas men are heroic and mighty. Uh, he says men's contribution to society is absolute. I mean, did did you enjoy sort of probing his vulgarity, or is that something that? Yeah, it was.、Um, I think it took me so long to kind of find Dad's voice because it was, you know, kind of all kinds of obscenity. But at the same time, I think now looking back. I was rereading it recently. Not that I reread my books regularly, but <laughs> it's just something came up, so I I, I reread that.、Um, so this was I wrote it when I was twenty six years old, and I was I was really shocked by by the anger in it actually. And and then looking back, I think I can really see myself. The reason I wanted to write about a character like that, like this promiscuous, terrible, ridiculous man. And and like you were saying, absolutely misogynistic. I think it's really me as a young woman, young woman writer, writing back to to the patriarchal society and then the literary circle, which really astounded me over and over. And that pretty much I suffered through in my early twenties. And I I was like looking at you know all the details of like Shen Xiang, the character that like him going whoring. Him keeping mistresses and him like at dinner parties pinching the waitress's waist or like doing all kind of horrendous things, and、um, and I, I remember that I got all those stories. A lot of them I heard them from dinner parties I attended. You know, I had to attend in in a sense because dinner parties in China is where everything happens. If you wanted to sign a book contract, you need to go to dinner party with, not in a bad way, but you just have to social. Um, but I remember back then, as a young woman, I was really invisible in those literary dinner parties and sitting, you know, among all quite senior men. And then they'd brag about their affairs in front of me because I was this timid-looking young girl, and because I was invisible to them. But I did see them. I saw them, you know, both as a young woman as and also as a writer. And as a young woman, I was, you know, incredibly disgusted and disorientated. But as a writer, I was incredibly excited, and I think I quietly, you know, took notes at those dinner parties, and I, I brought the stories home, and then I put them in the, in this、uh, novel. And so now, like looking back, I felt that was a young woman's revenge. Although not in a very obvious way, because you almost feel you've in this novel you've made this kind of terrible promiscuous middle-aged man the hero of your novel. So I think it's not the most obvious way of looking at it. But when I look at it, I thought that was my revenge. That was my punching up. It was my writing back as a young woman to the society. Because I suppose this was like a pre-Me Too era, so you know you don't have the vocabulary, and you didn't know how to cope or like to narrate to kind of、uh, even narrate it to yourself, and it was pretty brutal, I think, for a young woman to kind of、um, to have to live in that kind of a circle to try to survive. Yeah, it's. A subtle form of revenge, because as you say, you you put him at the center of your book, and you you even make him somewhat sympathetic. So, so it isn't obvious, but you wrote explicitly about those dinner parties in an essay for the New York Times a couple of years ago, not long after the English translation of your novel came out. And in it, you you're looking back at the experience of being, as you put it, the girl at a Chinese banquet. As you were just describing it, to have endured that as a young woman, what kind of impact did that have? 
Yeah, it was just not um it was not pleasant obviously and I think sometimes I wonder and I don't know if this will be too personal um so there was this one incident after I was married um to my husband and then I went on a tour with another group of Chinese writers and then one of them a male writer was commenting on the fact that I was married to a foreigner and and he was saying well surely only a foreigner could, would take you now that you're a 30 something woman who at that point I was still like in my PhD program so I was like a female PhD and also a writer who's in her 30s so this person was saying and uh, this man was saying you know i understand you could only find a non-chinese man which is a very typical comment and to my situation coming from chinese men i think it it i've heard this kind of comments a lot but i i sometimes think like especially after him commenting on that and i thought well probably it was the other way around it was psychologically speaking i mean i'm just thinking about it as if i were my own therapist it's precisely because i spent my whole like early 20s kind of sitting th- through things like that and i i just did not know how to have a proper relationship i think with with anybody in that circle in that society and i kind of feel that was part of the reason one of the reasons i think i am where i am that i am in the relationship i am in because it's not an easy decision i think you know to kind of not to abandon but like you know you have to now that i live in a different language and it's almost like having a second life and it's quite painful um but i feel part of the reason i've taken on this sort of um excruciating process not that i don't like my don't love my husband but i'm saying maybe like subconsciously it's because i was made unable to have a relationship with anybody from that society because i've forced to sit through things like repeatedly in my early 20s so then essentially i think i was traumatized isn't it um yeah <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean as you as as you described it in 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 this uh, essay, it's it's feeling simultaneously embarrassed and humiliated but also obligated to please. I mean, that's I mean that's crazy making. Yeah, yeah. I I I again, I don't know what the situation is like now because I think me too really made a difference, isn't it? Because nowadays, you know, women were your all allies, other women. Like we were in this together. I think me too really had that power of changing the narrative or maybe kind of of um forming a new narrative where the sisterhood of the sisterhood among women, I think which was really powerful and important. But back then because there wasn't cuz so I kind of I felt really isolated, you know, helpless in that situation where even though there were women around sporadically but i didn't think any of them would be able to help me or we could like unite yangu since 2015 you've been living mostly outside of china uh initially in dublin with your irish husband you were saying about how excruciating the, the that kind of adaptation has has been but i was wondering what kind of adjustment in terms of 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 culture shock specifically I mean, i mean i was reminded of there was a character from your one of your recent short stories in english a young chinese woman living in dublin and when she's asked how she finds ireland she always says good beautiful country nice people yeah i think similarly i think uh when i was living in dublin i was asked this question a lot as um people would always ask me um how do you find dublin and i i would not know what to say except for saying oh i think it's very windy so that would always be my go to answer when they ask me how you know how am i coping or like do you like dublin i was always oh, very windy <laughs> <laughs> because um i think i think the thing about living in a foreign country it just rids you of your individualism and and then you're not yourself you're just like this vague faced chinese or east asian person So then it just blends you into this background of collectiveness and it absolutely takes away your individualism from you. 
And I think it was very painful for me. Um, I don't know if it's if, if it's like painful for everybody. I'm sure it's painful for everybody, anybody. But I felt it was extremely painful for me because I've always been the writer. So I think that seems to, you know, because you're kind of, you spend your whole life accenting, enlarging your individuality. And then in that setting, suddenly it was just completely disregarded and muted. And that was such a contrast. And I just did not know how to cope with it. And then you were forced then to, to become the spokesperson of your country and your culture. And that's all people care about is uh, where did you learn your English? And do you have anything to say about Chinese economy nowadays? <laughs> and it's always those very big questions. And any one of them, those questions, is a reminder of your otherness. If they ask you, where do you learn your English? That implies this kind of a undercurrent that they think you're not supposed to speak English the way you do. So you are an exception, and aside from the rest of the group of your people, and which is kind of, you know, now we have the term, we say this is like microaggression. But the thing with Irish people is like, they're like absolutely lovely. So I could not bring myself to be upset with them. I remember once I was taking the, the tram, like the Lewis, so it's kind of, it's like a bus. And so I was on the on this public transportation now with this old man, um, this old Irish man, probably in his 80s, was sitting across um, from me. And then he was, oh, where do, you, where do you come from? They always ask, where do you come from? So then I said, I'm from China. And, and then like he said, oh, why are you in Ireland? Oh, my husband is from Ireland, etc. And suddenly he reached over his hand and he just pulled my hair. And he said, oh, what lovely hair you have. And I was absolutely shocked. Uh, but I couldn't be upset with this lovely old man. But at, at the same time, it was such a cringing experience. But he was absolutely, you know, kind of very kind and lovely. And he didn't realize this was something like inappropriate. So it's kind of, I think that event pretty much encapsulates my experience of um, living in Dublin. It's like everybody was so sweet and lovely, but at the same time, and this kind of a cringy event happens all the time that sort of reminds you that you're not an individual. You're just this part of this massive blurred collectiveness of the foreigners or of the like the East Asians. So that that was something quite difficult, I think. You, you said once that it was through reading James Joyce that you found your footing in, in the city of Dublin. How, did, how so? I don't know if this is kind of like a universal experience, but like for me, I think because I'm kind of like soaked in literature. So I think I really need to anchor myself in any kind of setting and via literature. And I think in a way, maybe the literary narrative is my real world, whereas the real world is somehow the simulation of the literal world as far as I'm concerned. So then I kind of feel when I lived in Dublin, um, the actual Dublin, I couldn't really anchor myself there unless I have a literary reference. So then I begin to read, reread Dubliners again. And, and then because, you know, through reading that, I gradually, slowly begin to construct a literary world via, you know, the descriptions um, and the stories of James Joyce. And and only after the literal world is being constructed did I feel that I actually live there, if that makes sense. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. But then you, and then you moved to Norwich, <laughs> so then you moved to England, <laughs> <laughs> and, and and starting writing in English. Uh, how did that come about? Because you said you were reluctant to do it initially. Yeah, I. I didn't want to write in English for so long and lots of people ask me this all the time because they feel, oh, you speak English, why don't you write in English? Well, I feel like the writing in Chinese is kind of my last last fort against this invasion of English in my life, you know, I, because I live my everyday life in English. Uh, we speak English at home, I live in an English-speaking country. So I kind of feel that is a little bit like my literary world, this last fort I wanted to hold. 
um, but that has to be in Chinese. So for so long, I was really kind of resisting. Um, but in the end, I think it's a similar thing, like to what I was saying earlier on, that um, I needed to construct a literary world that is related, that is the representation of the actual world I live in to be able to make sense of it. I kind of um, feel this process of me eventually caved in that I began to write in English is like me being cornered by <laughs> by all the English elements in my life. And in the end, I'm like, okay, okay. So then I, I, I began to write in English. But yeah, it's like ups and downs, obviously. I've been kind of um, almost um, exclusively writing in English for three, four years. Now, only recently after I sent in um, the manuscript of my collection, and um, did I go back to kind of writing Chinese a little bit. But English is now quite dominating in my literary practice. <laughs> Although I read somewhere you, you, you sometimes you think that maybe writing in English can be liberating in a... And I remember Ian Lee saying something like that when she moved after she moved from Beijing to the U.S. and became a writer. Has, has it been liberating for you? I know you were saying earlier there are certain things you couldn't say in in Chinese, you couldn't speak them, but in writing, does it, does it free you up as well? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think probably, well, first of all, I think to write in English, which was the first thing I discovered when I began to write in English, is that I certainly became a new writer again, meaning that I don't have the baggages of my previous work and I have no expectation that I need to meet. So that was quite refreshing. So I think this process of, of course, there were like, there were like quite painful and struggling aspects of this thing of like reinventing my writer's identity in English. But overall, I think that's something quite fun. And then I think the second thing about this idea of writing in English being liberating, I I think mostly it's really um, it's really about not in the sense of English versus Chinese, but mostly more likely in the sense of um, a second language versus the late your native language, especially you know I I think there are so many words and expression in Chinese, and I'm sure in English. That has something to do with the, sti the stigmatization of female bodies and female experiences. And I find it would be very difficult for me to write about those things in Chinese, um, because I think maybe every language is. It has like fundamentally a patriarchal structure in the language that in the most superficial sense, it tells you certain words related to often female body or female feelings uh, were inferior and were obscene. So then it's kind of this um, intuition being built into you and you just couldn't bring yourself to use it without feeling a sense of um, shame. And, and it's pretty strong, I think, in, your, in the native language. Um, but now when I write in the second language, in English, I think I don't get stirred up that much because I do, I, I'm mostly operating the, in this language um, using my rational aspect, you know, my French philosopher related aspect. So I have this distance and it, it, it allows me a much more freedom to kind of execute whichever terms, whichever phrases I want to use. And I think that freedom really enabled me to be able to discover and begin to write topics or stories or discussing um, kind of um, themes that I wouldn't have touched in Chinese. So I thought that was definitely very liberating for me. In, in 2018, you moved to Norwich, England with your husband and young son. And for the time being, you're raising your son in the UK. Does he have a foot in two cultures, Irish and Chinese, or do, do you want him to speak Chinese? Uh, how, how do you bridge that gulf, or how do you see the world for him? Mm. Well, sadly, my son doesn't quite speak Chinese um, because we speak English at home. And ever since COVID, I, I haven't been back to China for nearly three years now. So nowadays, speaking Chinese here, like by myself, um, has become increasingly painful to me. So then he doesn't really have much Chinese. Um, but I thought 
So when he was about maybe two years old, and when he first started to speak, and we taught him to say this sentence: "Say, Mama is Chinese, Daddy is Irish. I am both." And then he learned it because he just, you know, he didn't know what it meant, but he repeated it. And then we were like quite pleased by it, thinking, okay, this is how we want him to identify himself. But very quickly, he, you know, he began to go to the nursery, and then, and and then one day he came back home. He said, um, when he was maybe about a bit more than three years old, he said, "Mama is Chinese, Daddy is Irish, and I am English." <laughs> and it was such a moment, especially from a husband and an Irish man, and it's kind of、yeah. like what? And he was like, "Yeah, I'm English." And then you know, like last year when the、uh, when the Mars landing happened,、um, and then he was watching that on TV, and it was ex- he was very fascinated by it. And then we got him books about space. And then one day at dinner, he just suddenly announced to say, "Mama is Chinese, Daddy is Irish, I and I am Martian." <laughs> so, so then we thought, you know, like, and then me and my husband we talked about it. We thought, you know, our ideas of like nationalities, cultural identities, I don't really know. Like by the time my son grows up, those ideas, our ideas of those concepts, would probably become like obsolete. You know, who knows, like, what the world is going to be for them. So then I kind of feel. This idea of like he could be anything and actually gives me a bit kind of uplifting energy because I was obviously like quite un distressed thinking that he won't be able to speak Chinese. I still hope he will be able to speak Chinese, but like this idea of this future being really unknown, like all the concepts might just be thrown in the air, <laughs> and everything will be reshuffled and redefined. And and I hope that will happen. And and that make me kind of you know. Being a bit more uplifted. Well, I, I so enjoyed the chance to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Yan Gu, speaking to me from her home in Norwich, England, last year. Her novel, Strange Beasts of China, translated by Jeremy Tiang, is published by Melville House. Her other more recent novel, The Chili Bean Paste Clan, translated by Nikki Harman, is available in paperback from Belastia Press. Elsewhere, Yen Gu's first book, written in English, is a collection of short stories published by Scribner. Today's show was produced by Katie Swales. The associate producer is Melissa Gismondi. Technical operations by Will Yar. The senior producer of Writers and Company from the archives is Sandra Rabinovich. I'm Eleanor Wachtel. Next week, Alanisa Bomsuin. The Abenaki artist, activist, and documentary filmmaker has dedicated her life to telling the stories of and giving voice to the country's indigenous people. That's next week. I hope you'll join me. For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca/podcasts.